if you'll remember from the last time we met, which seems like ages ago in November, uh, Dana taught uh, that lesson, and um, she uh, taught the last part of the first chapter of James. And there was a passage, a verse, verse 22, that she sort of honed in on. And that verse says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so she talked to us a lot about being hearers and doers of the word. But when we get to chapter 2, then uh, James elaborates a little bit more. And he uh, really uh, talks to us uh, even more about what it means to be a doer of the word. And so tonight, as we uh, talk through this and study through this, keep that in mind. James is talking to us about what it looks like and means to be a doer of the word. So our lesson tonight is entitled Faith That is Alive and Working Faith that is alive and working. So we're just going to dive right into this uh, chapter two again. Thank you all for being here. There's just, you know, I thought, I, you know, a lot of times in January, our numbers kind of, you know, slump down. But I'm telling you, we have a crowd here tonight. And I am so glad to see each one of you, even our visitors that are here with us. Thank you for coming. I hope that you're blessed for being here tonight. Well, let's look at James chapter two, verse one. And we're going to start with the first seven verses. Verse one. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down by my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has not God cho chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Well, this, these verses are pretty straightforward. And they really don't need a lot of commentary. We can understand what James is saying. But I'm going to comment. Uh, I'm going to comment on these pa this passage's, uh, passage for three specific reasons. Uh, the first reason that I'm going to comment on this passage is this is the first of many examples that James is going to give us in regard to our conduct and our character and how that our conduct and our character should exemplify that of Christ. We have two examples that we can follow. We can either follow the example of the world or we can follow the example that Christ sets for for us in his word. As believers, we need to follow the example that Christ gives to us. Now, when Jesus was here in his ministry here on earth, he broke down the social barriers. He brought the gospel to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles. He preached to the rich as well as to the poor. He ministered to those who were old and sick as well as to those who are young and healthy. We find in the Sermon on the Mount that he uh, makes the sun to shine on the evil as well as those who do good. He brings rain to the just and to the unjust. That's God's character. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, that God shows no partiality. So when we show partiality in any way, shape, form, or fashion, then do we look more like the world or do we look like Christ? We look like the world. You know, when I study passages of Scripture like this, this is more particularly when it kind of gives you a little story setting, I try to draw a mental picture of that in my mind. 
And, you know, as I read this, I was, you know, kind of took myself to a different place. I, you know, thought about what it would be like to be in old Jerusalem during biblical times. And for a storekeeper, you know, I just kind of drew that picture in my mind. And he, this storekeeper is there and a man comes into his store and he is dressed in fine linen. He looks good. He has gold, uh, jewelry, and that shopkeeper immediately senses that that person has a lot of money spent. So he says, come in, come in. He finds him something to drink. And then he begins taking him around the shop and showing him the different things that he has and helping him to locate what he might want to buy and spend his money. Meanwhile, somebody else comes into the shop. Well, this guy, you know, looks sort of shabby and poor looking. Shopkeeper, you know, sees him come in, you know, but... He, he didn't think he's probably going to spend any money, so he just tells him, you wait over there. And when I'm through work, you know, helping this guy, then, you know, I'll help you. Have any of you ever had an experience similar to that? I have. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when Tara was about six years old, now, this is, you know, one story, but she was about six, and we hadn't lived in Lufkin very long. Uh, and, um, you know, it was when those little pageant dresses were real popular. You know, the ones that had all the little lace, and they, they came up like this, you know, just a lot of cream. Well, Tara's always liked fancy things, and she wanted one of those fancy dresses. And so I think it was at Easter. And, um, you know, we didn't have much back then. And, you know, those dresses cost, you know, about $50. Well, you think about in, in the, light, the late 1980s, that was a lot of money, a lot of money for a dress. Well, <clears throat> I had saved up the money and to, to get her this dress, one of those little dresses for Easter. Well, I took her to this little dress shop in Nacogdoches. And we went in, and um, there were several other ladies in the shop. And the lady, the sales lady, she was busy, you know, helping them. And I'm sure they were probably regulars to the shop, probably came in there a lot and probably spent a lot of money in there. Well, you know, Tara and I came in. She never acknowledged us. Uh, it was almost like we were invisible. And uh, we were walking around and looking, and, and finally I pulled out a couple of dresses, and uh, she never said anything to me. So finally I asked her, I said, is there a dressing room um, that we could use to try these on? Well, she just kind of pointed over there, you know. So we went in, and yeah, I fully intended to buy her a dress. I, I had the money. I fully intended to spend the money. But, you know, um, I look back on that, and, you know, um, you know, I get it. You know, I, I probably, when I came in the store, uh, did not give her the impression that I was going to lay down 50 or $60 for a dress. I, I get that. And you say, that's the way it is for, in business. People are in business to make money. So the lady, then the sales, she was trying to help the people she knew that more than likely was going to spend some money in her shop. Um, that's the way of our culture that's the way it is in the business world. That's the way it just is in the world. I understand that. But that is not the way of Christ. That's not the way of Christ. And so the second reason I want to, to uh, comment on these verses is in regard to the church. When people come into the church, how awesome is it that we are completely counter-cultural, and that we don't make distinctions. You know, what brings us together as a church, what brings us together here tonight as a group of ladies, is not our wealth, it's not our social standing. It should be our love for the Lord. And so, just think, well, you don't have to say anything, just think in your mind, as it relates to our church, on a scale from 1 to 10, where do you think we rate? You know, I, I thought about that this week. You know, I, I don't think that we're so bad, no. But I do think we have room to grow. 
And I think we should continually be seeking to be a 10. That should be our goal. The third reason that I wanted to comment on this section is that there is a difference between favoritism and discernment. Now, they're two complete different things. And we don't want to confuse the two. Uh, favoritism in the church is based on wealth or social standing or, you know, it can even be, Lee and I were talking about this uh, a little bit ago, you know, it can even be that we show favoritism based on our age group or people that are like us. But there's a difference in favoritism and discernment. Uh, showing discernment in our relationships based on conduct and character. You know, 1 Corinthians 5.13 says, Purge the evil person from among you. We should be discerning, and we should teach our children to be discerning in their relationships and in their friendships. Uh, we should consider a person's conduct and consider a person's character before befriending them. But this is not really not what James is talking about. He's talking about, he, he's, not that, he's not saying that discernment is wrong, but discrimination based on whether you're going to get something back from that person in the church environment is what we should not be doing. You know, um, am I making sense? You know, you have someone come to the church and visit the church and, you know, you know that, you know, they've got a pocket full of money. And you're thinking, you know, they, they you know, he, he's, he's a multimillionaire, you know. We need to make sure we get them in, into the church, you know. So we're going to bend over backwards to do everything we can to, to get them. Because you know why? They're going to write a check every month, hopefully a tithe check. And, boy, that's going to make a big difference. You see, that's what he's talking about. Um, with the high social standing. You know, somebody who's the who's who in town. You know, we need those kind of people in our church, you know, so that that brings us up in the community. You know, we want to be white collar. We want people to know, you know, we're upstanding people. Um, see, that's the kind of what, seeking people to be a part of your congregation just because you're going to get something in return. That's what James is warning us against. Um, it's our motive. Uh, and so when we think it's going to benefit us in some way, we're going to gain something in some way by having that person be a part of our congregation. So that's his, um, his warning. And then we go on to verse 8, and it says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. You see, James continues to help us figure out and simplify how we should treat other people. In verse 9, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is saying that we are to speak and act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, just think about that. What does he mean when he talks about the law of liberty? Um, go back to James chapter 1 and verse 25. He makes this reference again in verse 25. James says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Paul in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the law of liberty 
um, that James, the reference that James uses and the law of the spirit that Paul, it, that's just synonyms. It's just talking about the same thing. But what does it do? The law of liberty, the law of the spirit sets us free. It sets us free from what? From sin and from death. We're no longer under condemnation. Under condemnation. The law of liberty has set us free. It liberates us. It gives the, us the power to do what God has called us to do. When we accept Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells our body, and that Holy Spirit is, is our power source. The, it gives us the power to do what God has called us to do. It gives us the ability to not show favoritism. It gives us the ability to forgive someone who has really wronged us. It gives us the ability to love our neighbor as ourselves. It gives us the ability to be obedient to God's word. And it rewards us for doing what he enables us to do. And that's some kind of good system, isn't it? Yes. As believers, we have been freed from the bondage of sin. We've been freed from the bondage of sin and death. So therefore, we should speak and act as those who have the potential to be rewarded for how we speak and how we act. See, we're not going to have to stand before the Lord and be judged for our sins but we will stand before the Lord and give an account for what we say and what we do. And our rewards will be based on our actions. So, um, this is a good reminder to us. Uh, we're going to be judged for our words and our actions, and we don't have to speak and act like the world. We can speak and act like Christ would have us to. We're going to be rewarded. We're going to be rewarded for resisting sin. And we have the ability to resist sin because of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. So let's keep on. Um, verse 14. What is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the question that James is posing to us here is, What is it that... Uh, what are, what, is, what are the things that prove that our faith is real? What is it? Well, let's talk about that. I love to garden. And probably um, gardening is probably my favorite pastime or hobby. Now, most of you in this room uh, know enough about gardening or farming to know and to understand what germination is. You know, germination is when that seed sprouts and becomes a, a young plant. Well, just because you plant a seed in the ground, does that mean that that seed is going to germinate? No. No, it doesn't. Think back to the parable of the sower. The seed of truth was planted into four different types of soil. But germination only happened when the seed, the seed of truth, God's word, fell on fertile soil or fell on a fertile heart. So for in order for germination to take place, then the word of God ha has to match our desire to be pleasing to God. When God's word matches our desire to be pleasing to God, then a birth takes place. In germination, God's word is germinated within us. And it's then that we can be able to grow. Okay? Um, let's take corn, for example. Um, 
when gardening, you know, you plant one kernel of corn, hoping that that one kernel of corn is going to produce hundreds of kernels of corn. You know, you plant a kernel of corn and a corn stalk will grow up there and it has the potential of, of producing three ears of corn. And each one of those ears of corn can have hundreds of kernels on it. So you plant that one kernel hoping that you're going to get hundreds in return. Um, what word do we use to describe the process from the time we plant that seed until we harvest that ear of corn. There's a word that we use that would describe that, that process. Well, if you were to go down to Lowe's, and, and those of you who, who, who garden, you, you, you'll, you'll immediately understand this. If you go down to Lowe's and you purchase a pack of bodacious sweet corn, and you turn it over on the back, and you look on the back side, it will tell you that it takes 75 days for that corn to reach maturity. 75 days from the time you plant that seed before you'll, ever, you'll be able to pick that ear of corn. It'll tell you that on the back of the, of, of the package. A plant has to mature in order to produce a crop. This is the same with you and I in our lives. In order for us to reach our goal of spiritual maturity, in order for us to bear fruit in our lives, then it's going to require that we mature. Uh, that's what this whole book about is about. This is what the whole book of James is about. Spiritual maturity. Growing in the Lord so that we can bear fruit. We can produce evidence of our faith. Let me ask you another question. Is it possible for the seed to germinate and not produce a crop? Yeah. My daddy and I have planted a pea patch and had the prettiest uh, pea vines you've ever seen and not picked a pea off of it. You know, that's the truth. I don't know what happened, but it, it, they, didn't, they didn't produce anything. So, yes, it's also possible for a person to be born again and not produce a crop of good works. You know, that is what ultimately what God wants for us in our life. He wants us to bear fruit. When we go out to the field and you pick that ear of corn off that stalk, it's proof. It's proof that the seed that you planted germinated, it matured, and it has produced a crop. It's proof. Let's continue on, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Our works are proof of our faith. Our works are proof that our faith was germinated. It's proof that our faith grew and that it matured. And now, our, through by our faith, we are producing a fruitful harvest. Without fruit, there's no evidence of our faith. Let me ask you yet another question. Can you do good deeds without the foundation of faith? Yes. People do it all the time. It's called philanthropy. Um, you know, they give money to good causes. They give their time and their effort. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, they do this to try to improve uh, you know, welfare for people and uh, just, you know, make things better in the, in the lives of others. There's nothing wrong with us doing that. But some people think that their charitable giving and the things that they do is going to earn them favor with God or that 
their charitable giving will earn them a place in heaven. And we must not be deceived by that because the things that we do are no substitute for the gospel, are no sub substitute for the truth. So um, we can't earn our way into heaven. We cannot earn our way into heaven. There's a quote. I don't know where it came from, but anyway, I, I, I want to read it to you. It says, while it is true that our good deeds can never earn salvation, true faith always results in a changed life and in good deeds. This just sort of wraps up in a nutshell what James is trying to communicate to us. But I want to I wanna push this uh, just a little bit further. You know, we can't lean on our starting point as if that's the end. We must continually look towards the finish. We can't, we or we don't get saved and then that's it. You know, being saved is only the starting point. That's the starting point. You know, we're lying that we get, you're saved, you get started, and then the gun goes off and the race starts. You just see, and you, you run that race of life and you continue all the way to the end. Being saved is only the starting point. So, um, verse 19 says, um, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. You see, the demons believe that there is a God. They know that there is a God. The devil knows that there is a God, and he shudders. But the devil will not be in heaven. You see, belief is just the starting point. God wants his word to mature us. He wants it to grow us so that we can bear fruit as evidence of our faith. Um, Verse 20 says, do you, want me, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Remember I told you before how the, the Sermon on the Mount and James sort of parallel each other. In, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus said this, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Our faith apart from our works and apart from our fruit is useless. It's useless. You know, uh, a good corn stalk, I don't care how pretty that stalk is, if it doesn't bear fruit, if it doesn't mature, if it doesn't produce an ear of corn, it's useless. You might as well just chop it down and throw it in the fire. Same thing with us as Christians. If we bear no fruit, if there's no evidence of our faith, what good are we? The scripture says we are useless. We're useless apart from our works, apart from our good deeds. Now, I want to, to make sure that you understand Bearing fruit. What am I talking about when I say bearing fruit? What does that look like? You know, we can go back to the book of Galatians where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those things are fruit, are evidence of our, um, of our faith. Uh, to be long-suffering, to be patient is difficult. Uh, especially when you're talking about hard situations, uh, and in 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 uh, to be long suffering and be patient in relationships that are difficult, to have joy in spite of your situation, to uh, to love unconditionally, not based on what anything that you're going to get in return. You see. That's not the way of the world. But that is the way of Christ. I also think that resisting sin is a fruit of the Spirit. And as you go over, we go over into James chapter 3, where he talks about bridling our tongue. You see, 
A person that's able to control their tongue, to control what comes out of their mouth, that resists the temptation to say things that you shouldn't say, See, that's fruit. I think that's fruit of our faith. So resisting sin, I think, is, is, is evidence and proof of our, um, of our faith. And so uh, bearing fruit may look a little different, you know, uh, but all of those things um, are evidence in our life that we uh, know Christ as our Savior. Um, and then we'll go into the final passage of chapter 2. And uh, James gives us, I, I love this part, because uh, James gives us two examples of individuals who matured and produced a crop. Now, these two examples couldn't be, uh, they're different as daylight and dark. Uh, uh, you couldn't pick two different people. To, to give an example, uh, as he did, uh, they're so different, Abraham and Rahab. Now, Abraham was known as a friend of God. Rahab was a harlot. So, he, he you know, he, he reached all the spectrum, didn't he? Uh, uh, Abraham, think about this. Abraham's fruit did not appear until decades into his relationship with God. He had known God a long time before God called him to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. He was faithful, and he was doing what God had called him to do. Rahab, on the other uh, hand, faith was germinated, and she produced fruit within minutes of her relationship with God. I just thought that was amazing how he used those two uh, to illustrate this. Uh, so, um, we'll continue. In verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the spirit was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see, that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. But as the body but as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. There is not one person in this room that God is going to call you uh, to sacrifice your child on an altar. Uh, there's, there's not one person in this room that I think that God is going to uh, ask you to hide Israeli slaves, uh, spies, you know. I, I get that, but I will tell you, ladies, with 100 percent accuracy that God has called and he has designed work and fruit for every one of us in this room. How do I know that? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship created, germinated in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? Good works. For God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God prepared for every one of us fruit that we should bear. You know, just like we planted that corn seed expecting. We planted that seed expecting to go out there and pick that ear of corn off there. God in eternity past, determined the harvest that he wants each one of us to produce. That was important to him, and it should be important to us. That's the reality. He expects our works to come to maturity. He expects that. We're not to just sit around Super happy 
that we are saved and do nothing. But how often is that not the case? I want you to take just a few minutes. I'm going to give you about five minutes um, in your table time, and then if someone wants to comment, uh, I'll give you time to do that. Uh, I want you to think about this in your own life. Do your works match your profession of faith? Does your fruit match your profession? You know, James didn't, he didn't write this letter with the intent that we're to use this letter to measure other people's spiritual, uh, you know, progress. He wrote this letter because he wants us to examine ourselves. He wants us to look inside of ourselves. Where are we? Are we bearing fruit for the kingdom? Do our, does our fruit match our profession? Is it evidence and proof of our faith? You know, um, people have excuses. You know, they say, you know, I can't do this and this because I'm too old. Or it's the season, my season in life. You know, I've got little kids and I, I just, you know, I'm so busy I don't have time for all that because I've got all these, just got to take care of all this stuff at home. Or their health. Or even their job demands. I mean, you can just list the excuses on and on and on why people do or don't. Uh, you know, I, I, I shared with my table a few minutes ago uh, someone that just, she's, it came to, to my mind because she has been such a blessing to me over the last couple of years. Some of you will know Jonette Wisnett. Um and uh, she, I don't know how old Jonette is. I, I think she's probably close to 90, but uh, not not sure. But I, I'm pretty, but sure. Well, when I, I came to Chakelty's, uh I was about 25. And uh, Miss Jonette, uh, at that time, we were over at the old church, and she was over the kitchen. And she took that responsibility, uh, you know, she, she was, you know, all about that kitchen. And anybody, and when we uh, had uh, funerals or anything, you know, she took care of that, you know, and, and I, I I can just hear her voice, you know, when she calls me, you know, uh, I, she'd call, you know, and of course then when I was young, I'd be like, oh, mercy, you know, um, but, but I've since grown to, to know and, and understand. I'd pick up the phone, she'd say, baby, this is Jonette. We got a funeral on Friday, and I need you to have your salad here at 9 o'clock. Have it here at 9 o'clock, have a salad. Okay, bye. And she'd hang up. You know, that's it. You know, she didn't give you a chance to say anything. You know, you had a salad, and whatever she told you to bring, you better have it there and have it there at 9 o'clock. You know, and so she took, but she took care of everything. I mean, she made sure. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate that. You know, but I, I, look, I look at her life now. She's 90-something years old. Uh, she's not really able to, to go and do like she she's not really able to be here at church and uh, but you know she's still faithful she's still running the race there's not a week that goes by that I don't get a phone call from Jonette Wisdom I pick up the phone baby this is Jonette I just call to tell you I'm, I'm still praying for you how are you doing you know, I'll tell her, I said, why are you, Miss Jonette? Well, I'm doing good. I, I, I've been a little sick, but I'm doing okay. Well, I just wanted you to know I'm still praying for you. Okay, bye. She hangs up, you know. Um, but, you know, I I just appreciate that so much because I know she, she's praying for me. And she took the time to call me and to tell me that she was still praying for me. And here she is. I, I mean, literally. She probably needs 10 times more help and assistance than I need. But she is continuing to run the race and to bear fruit. And, and you know, that's the way we all should be. We don't ever, God has, if we, if we have breath within us, God has something for us to do. And we should be um, about the Lord's 
work and, and, and to advance his kingdom. So I want you to take just a minute and I want you to think and talk of your table. You know, what has God given you to do? Also, maybe you've received just from reading and studying this chapter a renewed vision as to what God would have you to do. And I want you to just, how are you going to do it? Just share with your group for about, God gave you about five minutes to share. Well, it looks like that you guys have had some good conversation at your tables, and I, I, I hope that that has been beneficial to you. Is there anything that anyone would like to share in this regard? Anything anybody would like to share? You know, as it relates to our faith and our bearing fruit of the Lord. Anything that has to do with the lesson. Okay, so uh, when I was in my young 20s, which was like two years ago, uh, we were doing a precept study over covenant, and uh, we studied this passage about Abraham sacrificing his son, and some of y'all have probably heard me say this, but I'll probably cry talking about it, but when we studied that, and I realized, and I had young children, and I realized that Abraham had so much faith in God that God was going to raise his son from the dead. That that's why he was going to sacrifice his son because he believed, never doubted that God would raise him from the dead. Me, I would be saying, God, I'm not hearing you correctly. I know you're not asking me to do that. But you think about that. Do we have that much faith? I mean... I'm going to tell you, I, I don't know, I couldn't sacrifice one of my children, but he had that much faith, and that's what God asks of us, is to have faith like Abraham. So, you know, he also says in another, another passage, if we have faith, it's that of a mustard seed. We can say to mulberry tree, be lifted up and cast into the sea. You know, he gives us all the faith that we need to do with what he calls us to do. And as I said, he's not calling us to sacrifice our, our child on the altar, but he does call us to do things. And he gives us the faith, and he gives us the ability to do what he calls us to do. Anybody else? Thank you, Anita, for that. Yeah. One of the things I was going to say is that, like, I'm terrible at names, but I was just encouraging our table that, you know, if if, if you're talking to people and you don't know their name, just ask. Because um, I, I think a lot of times, like, it'd be also neat, even like in this setting, that we would all switch seats and tables so that we can really get to know. Like, I've met people tonight that I know I've met before, but like, okay, that's the name that goes with that. And just um, being more welcoming. Yeah. I agree. You know, I, I I tried that. One time we did that. We we put something up where they had to sit in a certain spot, you know, and then, you know, you know how we are, creatures of habit. People would just start moving things around so they could sit where they wanted to sit, you know. And uh, uh, that didn't work so well. But, you know, I do agree. I think, you know, moving around, getting outside of your comfort zone so that you can get to know uh, other people. And then that's going to help you to know how to encourage them and how to pray for them and, and, and being plugged into their life. So, anybody else have anything? <laughs> okay. So I think one of, one of the things that we kind of were sharing in our table was that a lot of times it's in the small things that we don't think are very important, but they are, like Miss mm -hmm. JoJo, who calls you, and she calls me. Right. And um, she prays for me. Right. And, uh, uh, and that is so meaningful. Mm -hmm. But it's also in the daily things. I think one of the biggest lessons is impatience. Mm -hmm. Because things don't happen as fast as we want them to. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't get the answer or the fruit as fast as we think we ought to. Right. Yes. 
you know, the, all of those things, patience, you know, and I think and having joy in your life in spite of your circumstances. And that is a daily, daily battle. I, I, I see that in my own life. You know, I have to make a decision every single day to have joy in my life and not allow my circumstances to overcome and to take over and to ruin my joy. And so you're right. It's those little things every day uh, that also uh, is a testament to our faith. Anyone else? Two years ago, we had a really big garden, and you were talking about the corn. You know, I, this came to my mind, but we had a beautiful corn patch. I mean, absolutely beautiful, and I couldn't wait till it was time to harvest the corn because we always gather the corn. We just kind of make a, a day of it. You know, the whole family, we just start pulling the ears of corn and wheelbarrow them out, you know, with a patch, and somebody cuts the top off of them and then we have moved the corn down the line and we shuck it, you know, and, and get the silks out of it. And then we have a pan of water and we wash the corn, you know, well, absolutely the corn. I mean, you would cut it at the top, you know, when you kind of cut it and you pull back those silks, you see kind of right in the top where the worms have been. So you might have to cut it a little bit further, you know, to get the, the worm out and to get the rotten part off the corn till you get to the good part of the corn. Well, we just kept cutting and cutting and it cut and it seemed like, you know, before long we didn't have any corn left because it was like every spot of the corn, it's like it had a rotten spot in it, you know, and that made me think, you know, of sometimes the rottenness in me if, you know, I peel back you know, or you saw me behind a closed door in how I responded, you know, to my child or to my husband or to my coworker or to my friend when I was really, really frustrated, you know, you know, would I have the good fruit or would it be rotten, you know, and it made, you know, it, it, it continuously makes me think that, you know, God uses his word to peel back, you know, and into my that rotten part of my heart and reveal it, you know, so he can clean it up and teach me to not, uh, you know, respond in frustration or in anger and let rotten things come out of my mouth or let my actions, you know, towards somebody else be hurtful in the way that I act. So I just really Thank thought you. about that. Thank you, Leah, for that. Anyone else have anything you want to share? Thank you for all of the, the good comments and all the things that you've uh, shared. I want, in, in closing tonight, I want to see if I can get this fixed back. Um, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. And I want us to read this passage together. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. Paul says to Timothy in this passage, We are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. I want us to summarize very quickly, and you can write this in your book if you want to, uh, just some things that we've learned tonight from uh, this passage in James chapter 2. Uh, the first thing we learned that real faith shows no partiality. The second thing that we learned is that if we are living according to the royal law of liberty, we have the ability to love our neighbor as ourselves and to handle the situations that come into our life. The third thing I think we learned from this passage is that as believers, we're not going to face judgment for our sin. Jesus is 
took care of that for us on the cross. And when God looks at us, he sees the blood of Christ that covers over our sin. But we will stand in judgment for our uh the things that we say and the things that we do. We'll face the believer's judgment for our rewards. And then the fourth and final thing that I think we learn from this chapter is that the production of good works, the production of fruit, is, is evidence of our faith and God's plan for us. And so... Uh, that was a lot of things to learn from that chapter, wasn't it? I want one more thing, one more passage that I want to read to you. You don't have to turn to it. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love. And good works. You see, that, ladies, that's why we're here tonight. So we can stir one another up. We can encourage one another to be faithful and to produce fruit and evidence of our faith. And we should be continually looking for uh, those that we can encourage and uh, ways that we can encourage others to uh, live for the Lord and to show uh, and demonstrate their faith in the world. So uh, having said that, I just want to remind you that I will be teaching a class starting on Sunday, Women Mentoring Women. And that's what that's about. It's about coming alongside another woman and helping her and encouraging her uh, in her walk with the Lord and how we can do that. You know, several people have asked me in the past, you know, I'd love to be a mentor and I'd love to disciple someone, but I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to go about it. Well, that's what this class is designed to teach you and to give you some tools in your toolbox so that you'll know how to go and you can be a blessing to someone else and mentor and disciple someone else. So uh, if there's nothing else, thank you again for being here tonight. Uh, everything has been great and um, I just appreciate each one of you and uh, just it's a, it, you bless me more than I, I, I ever could bless you. I promise you that. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray tonight that we would meditate on this passage over and over and over again. And that what sin that we have in our life that we would repent of. And what positive, think about what positive words and actions that you would have for us to say and do. Remind us, Lord, that we're going to stand in judgment for the things that we say and that we do. And Lord, enable us through the power of your spirit to bear fruit that pleases you and uplifts your kingdom. And I ask all these things in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen.